Hey, good morning, and welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. In person, we are meeting at our building on Hill Road, and online, we have a live stream available on our website, faithonhill.com. Our Facebook page always has the videos up, so if you don't catch it live, you can go back and look later, and you don't have to have a Facebook account to check out facebook.com backslash faithonhill. And then finally, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you can search Faith on Hill and find any podcast that we put out from our Sunday morning services to our 20-minute Bible studies to anything else that we might release. Uh, We know that most people who are with us online are listening to the audio, and so wherever you're at, if you're out for a jog or you're driving somewhere, we want to say welcome. We are glad that you are here. If you consider Faith on Hill your church home, but you don't connect with us regularly in person, we'd love to have you reach out. Uh, be connected. We have an online small group that meets every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. We have in-person small groups Sunday mornings, Tuesday nights for young adults. We have our youth group on Tuesday nights. Uh, So you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com to get connected in life-on-life relational Christianity with other believers. We are always taking donations for the Wichita Family Center. Uh, Mostly we collect non-perishable food items, but we're also looking to collect winter clothes, and you can bring donations to the church building. You can email me, adam at faithonhill.com, if you want to come by during the week. Also, we are now taking toy donations for the Toy and Joy program, which serves underprivileged children, underserved children in our community. And so they're taking toys, uh, uh, you know, kids elementary age, younger teens, and uh, if you want more information on that, you can email me as well and love to connect you with some information there. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Nahum today. And if you have never read the book of Nahum or didn't know there was a book of Nahum, that's all right. That's why we are studying the le- 10 least read books of the Bible. Let's study the Bible together. Also, at the end of our time today, we are going to have communion. So, uh, if you have some crackers and some juice or some tortilla and some uh, water or a big hunk of bread and some wine, whatever is applicable for your situation, uh, you can pause this and have that ready. All right, let's study God's Word together. Well, if you open your Bibles to the book of Nahum, it's right after the writings of the prophet Micah and just before the writings of the prophet Habakkuk. Or you could just go to the table of contents in the front of your Bible and find it, which honestly is what I had to do this week. Now, Nahum is interesting because you might remember that Jesus spent a lot of his earthly ministry in the city of Capernaum. And if you think about it, Capernaum could also be pronounced Capernaum or the city of Nahum. And so there's thought that either the city was where he was from or it was named after him, although I tend to think it was where he was from. Nahum is largely speaking or writing to or against, depending on how you want to see it, the city of Nineveh. Now, you might recognize Nineveh uh, from other things we have studied, most prominently the book of Jonah. And Nineveh was this massive, important city in the ancient world. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, one of the most powerful empires in that day. And so Jonah is or sorry, Jonah, Nahum is writing to them. Now, Jonah, this is where my brain was going. It's good to have the timeline. It says in verse 1, chapter 1, a prophecy concerning Nineveh, 
the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. Now, Jonah had gone to Nineveh. You might remember this when we studied the book of Jonah just recently. And that's about 770-ish B.C. Where it could be 10 years later, 10 years earlier, but around 770 B.C. Now, remember, B.C. goes backwards. So 100 years after 770 B.C. is 670 B.C. because it's all moving towards the time of Christ. It honestly makes me laugh at the uh, transition to B.C.E. and C.E., you know, before Common Era, Common Era. It's like, what made this the Common Era? This is all dated from Jesus Christ. So, you know, I, I don't lose my mind when I see B.C.E. or C.E., but I just think it's funny. So Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it was uh, conquered, it conquered Israel about 732 BC or about 40 years after Jonah. So here's the thing. Remember, Jonah went, proclaimed that God was going to judge the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh repented and God did not judge them. But 40 years later, they were back to their old ways. The, the, the change of heart was short-lived. And they had conquered the people of God. Now, Nahum is writing about 626 B.C. to 612 B.C. So about 100 years after Israel was conquered by the Assyrian Empire, which tells us that he was living and operating in the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had had a civil war. It had been divided north and south, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. So if, if Nahum is writing during this time, then he is writing in the southern kingdom because the northern kingdom was wiped out, conquered, their people taken away in chains. This, by the way, this is not in my notes, but it's worth mentioning. This is where people get the idea of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They weren't lost. We know where they went. The the centuries and, and millennia old Jewish communities in Persia and Iraq and uh, Jordan and these, these centuries old, millennia old Jewish communities in the, in the Near East started here at this dispersion. So if you hear somebody talking about the lost tribes of Israel, it's, it's nonsense. But anyway, so Nahum's writing about 140 years after Jonah He's writing about 100 years after Assyria has conquered the northern kingdom. And now, the people of Israel, how, how Judah, excuse me, how the kingdom of Judah staved off being conquered was they got bought off. All right, so, so the southern kingdom of Judah is still independent, but they are sort of a, a puppet state or a vassal state to the Assyrian empire. They pay them tribute. Uh, the elites we learned about uh, recently as we studied the book of Zephaniah, the elites were uh, basically had adopted Assyrian culture and they were just trying to assimilate themselves in. And so Nahum is writing a warning. It's a warning against Nineveh, but you think about who's the target audience? Is anyone in Nineveh going to read the writings of a guy in an obscure country that they have functionally conquered? It's very arguable that the original audience is not Nineveh. The intended audience is the people of Judah. And, and Jonah is speaking to them, 
And he's trying to bring them to a place of choosing. Are you going to live in reality or are you going to live in this fantasy that you've created for yourself? Are you going to live in the truth of God or are you going to live in the fiction of this world? So let's read what he says. Verse 2, the Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. I have read where some have called the book of Nahum the hymn of hate. And what they say is here's this prophet who's writing hateful, vengeful things about God and about this city of Nineveh. I don't believe that's what's happening here. What Nahum is declaring is that God is just. He is a jealous and avenging God. If you are avenging something, it means something has gone wrong. Something needs to be avenged. If you are the victim of evil, let's say that you lived in Rwanda during the genocide. Let's say that you lived in apartheid South Africa. Let's say that you lived in Europe during the the rise of the Third Reich. Let's say that you lived in Singapore or Taiwan or Malaysia when the Japanese empire was expanding in the late 30s and early 40s. And you had experienced oppression and conquest and war and starvation and rape and all of these other things. That's what the people of Judah had experienced. And people all over the Near Eastern world had experienced at the hands of the Assyrian Empire. So Nahum, you might say, oh, he's talking about this angry God. No, he's talking about a God who says, I am not going to allow this to carry on. It's interesting. There is apparently some thought that the saying, the Lord is slow to anger, which appears at least eight times in the Old Testament. The, the saying, the Lord is slow to anger, is a way for the people to acknowledge that God has not yet acted without saying, God, you see this? And acting like a two-year-old and going, hey, why haven't you done what I want you to do when I want you to do it? It's a way for the people to be respectful of God and then yet at the same time be honest about their situation that God has not yet acted. But there's a, an affirmation of faith and hope. He will act. He will move. He will not let things go on as they are. He is slow to anger. So he's saying these things, these things are true about God. God is just. So for the people feeling the oppression, there is hope that God will not leave you where you are. Some have said that we in America are experiencing persecution in the last couple of years. I do not believe that is true. I am trying very hard. I, and I mean this sincerely. I'm trying very hard to have an increased sensitivity and charity towards those who hold that position. But I don't believe it's true. It's very possible that you could call us the inconvenienced church, 
But I believe that the truly, the truly persecuted church, and funny enough, today is a day that uh, has been set aside for prayer for the persecuted church, and we will pray for them later. But I believe that those who are truly persecuted around the world, in, in communist countries, in Muslim countries, in, in dictatorships, that those places and people would look at us and laugh and say, that's a sick joke, that you think you're persecuted. While we have homes taken from us, while we are beaten, while we are thrown in jail, while we are killed for our faith, and you've just been asked to wear a mask. I don't believe we are persecuted. But if you are in persecution, this is a message of hope that God is just. If you are in persecution and trial and you say, why isn't God moving now? This is also a message of a reminder. Hey, God is slow to anger. And he, I'm so thankful, slow to anger against me. But that also means he's slow to anger against those I want him to be angry with. It's also a reality sending message to those in power. You think that you're getting away with this. You think that you can bring false gods like the King Manasseh had done. And you can bring these idols into the temple. And, and you, can, you can murder children in the temple of God. You can commit sexual immorality in the temple of God. You think you can do these things and get away with it. But remember that God is slow to anger. That God is giving you a chance to repent. And certainly that's how it is in our day where there are people just living their life and doing whatever and they think God doesn't care. Don't mistake God's mercy in your life, his slow to anger mercy for not caring. So God is just, God is good. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run. Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon fade, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt away, the earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, the rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. So the last thing that Nahum is declaring about God is that God is good. God is a refuge. In times of storm and of trial, it is hard to see anything other than the storm. It's hard to see anything other than the waves crashing around us, the wind, the cloud, everything. But God is there, and he is good, and he is a refuge even when we cannot see it. So Nahum Again, you say, well, is he, it says this is concerning Nineveh, but it's not really about Nineveh. It's about the people in the kingdom of Judah. And he's saying to those who are still faithfully believing in God, God is still with you, and he is still a refuge for you, and he is still good. So this idea of reality versus fantasy I can live in the fiction or the fantasy of this world around me that God doesn't care, that God's not active, or maybe he even affirms what I'm doing. Or I can live in the reality that God is good and he is just, and he does not affirm the sins of this world, but he affirms Jesus, his son, who has paid the price for the sins of this world and has given us power through God the Holy Spirit to live in victory 
and to turn away from the sins of this world. Next, Nahum speaks about what God is doing. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. Speaking of there will be a final time where God says, that's it and no more. We might call that the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. When Jesus comes back, the second coming, however you want to call it, that's what this is talking about. Verse 10, they will be entangled among thorns, drunk from their wine, and they will be consumed like dry stubble. For you, Nineveh, has come one, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. And this is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. I will break your yoke from your neck. I will tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the image of your idols that are the temples of your God. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Now, I believe that this is speaking of a short term and a long term. That yes, Israel was going to be taken away into captivity, but God was going to restore them. And in the long term, the ultimate term, this is speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But what God is doing is this, verse 7, he is a refuge for his people. He cares for his people. God is create, I believe God is creating refuges all around us. And it's up to us to walk into them. Verse 8, God is active against evil. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. This is an, an issue of faith right now. We have to have conviction and faith and belief that God will work in these days as he has worked in the past against evil, wickedness, unrighteousness. We have to believe and hope that God will ultimately put an end to the madness that when Jesus returns, as he said he would, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom of peace and justice, that that day is coming. Verse 13 tells us that God is bringing freedom. I will break their yokes from your neck and tear your shackles away. All right, who's the original audience? The kingdom of Judah, the people of God. There's oppression and that will end. Longer term, they will be brought back from their captivity. Ultimately, this is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. The, the shackles of political oppression come and go, but the shackles of sin and death are eternal. And the yoke and the weight of, of unrighteousness cannot be cleansed on our own. But Jesus came and he brought freedom and he brought cleansing. And so he set us free when we become Christians, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are set free. But that bondage and that yoke of sin can still be an issue in our lives. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God brings a work of cleansing 
and power and holiness that sets us apart from this world of death and destruction. God is active against evil. We have to trust that and believe it. He's bringing freedom. We have to trust and believe it. There's no limits to the freedom God brings. The only limit is ourselves and saying, well, I don't, I don't want to go any farther. God's saying, I'm ready to take you farther. But we put limits on it. And finally, he's bringing hope. He says in verse 15, Look, there on the mountain, the feet of one who brings good news to proclaims peace. Paul quotes this verse in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 15. You can go look it up on your own, on your own time. But he says about people who preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, those who, those who proclaim Jesus risen from the dead, he says they are fulfilling this verse, bringing peace and proclaiming good news. We celebrate because of Jesus and his work. And finally here, he's saying hey, this is who God is. That's the fiction, the fantasy that God is unjust, that God is not working, that God isn't good. Hey, here's what God is doing. The fantasy is that God doesn't care about his people. He's not active in this world. He's not bringing freedom. But the reality is he is doing all of those things. And then finally, this is what God himself says about the world. Chapter 2, verse 1. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. And Nineveh was under threat from an alliance of the Medes and the Babylonians, which funny enough, the Medes would later conquer the Babylonians. So this alliance was not because they were best friends. It was like, we hate Nineveh, you hate Nineveh, let's get together and work against them. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, through the, though the destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. And we talked about this last week in the book of Haggai, the restoration of the temple, the restoration of Jerusalem, and eventually the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. The shields of their soldiers are red, the warriors are clad in scarlet, the metal on the chariots flashes on the day that they are made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open, and the palace collapses. So they send their best troops to the wall. They put up all of their defenses and the river gates are thrown open and the palace is taken. Verse 7, it is decreed that Nineveh will be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh, like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, and stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face goes pale. Every face go grows pale. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young? The lion and their lionesses went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his club, cubs and strangled the prey of his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions, and I will leave no prey on the earth. The voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. So God is against this rebellious world. I love living here. 
I do. I love living in Oregon. I love living in Portland. There's so many things I love about it. Uh, you know, I have friends that live in other parts of the country, and I do not want to live there. That being said, we have to recognize that this world, the whole world, this country, America, this state, Oregon, this, this place we're in, is against God. That America is not for God. I, I, I mean, it's just not. And, and you can argue that it, it, it has been often in name only when it's claimed to be. That God is against this rebellious world. And he isn't interested in establishing a kingdom of people. He isn't interested in establishing my kingdom or your kingdom. He is interested in establishing the kingdom of heaven with Jesus as its ruler. So God is against this world of rebellion. And, and Nineveh, with all of its fortifications and its wealth and its elite troops, will come to nothing and did come to nothing. It was so destroyed that people said it's a myth. When the Bible talks about Nineveh, it was this made-up city like Shangri-La or uh, Atlantis or whatever. It's this mythical city. It's not real until somebody found it. Uh, there was a French commander who was in what we know of as the city of Mosul in Iraq. And he noticed there were these mounds on the other side of the river. So he took expeditions to the other side of the river and began to exp excavate, and he found the city of Nineveh. God is against this rebellious world. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, chasing, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaves nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. God sees the fullness of the wickedness of this earth. He does. On an individual level and on a collective level, he sees the wickedness. Because you could see somebody in, in Nineveh saying, well, I've never prostituted myself. I've never participated in witchcraft. But as a collective people, they had. Uh, prostitution was almost always linked in those cultures to pagan idolatrous worship. Witchcraft, we think of it as like, you know, somebody like saying some magic words, but sorcery, the, the Greek word for sorcery is where we get our word for pharmacy. Witchcraft was linked to uh, not just occult practices, but to drug use, was linked to uh, the human trafficking of, of young girls who they thought were fortune tellers. So it's easy to see he's using this narrative like this literally was happening. And then in a larger sense, uh, that's what they had done with Israel. Hey, come over here and prostitute yourselves with our system. Hey, dress like us, talk like us, live like us, worship like us, engage in our sorcery, engage in our substance abuse, engage in our idolatry, engage in our prostitution. And God sees the fullness of our wickedness. And he knows that no one is able to save, so he himself became a man 
And Jesus lived among people, fully God, fully human. And when he died on the cross, he took the punishment for our prostitution. He took the punishment, the justice that our wickedness, our witchcraft, our sorcery deserved. You say, I've never done sorcery. Again, it's not about saying some magic words. The idea is, is, a, is a holistic view of immorality. Because only Jesus saves. I am against you, verse 5, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirt over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt. I will make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? And you might think that sounds harsh. Again, go back in history and look at the Assyrian Empire. A wicked people, a violent people, a child murdering people, an abusing of women people. And God is slow to anger and he has given them chance after chance after chance. And for a little while under, with Jonah, they repented for a moment, but then they turned back. And if you try to have faith in God on your own strength, you might try it for a moment. People say, oh, I tried Christianity. You might have tried Christian religion or you might have tried church attendance. There is a difference between trying church attendance and surrendering your life fully to the power of God. Verse 8, are you better than Thebes situated on the Nile with water all around her? The river was her defense, the water her wall. And Thebes, this great city in Egypt, with all of these natural resources and defenses, conquered. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength, put in Libya among her allies, yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles and all her great men put into chains. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All of your fortresses, like fig trees, fall into the mouth of the eater. They laugh at the fortified cities. Oh, excuse me. I turned one page too long, too far here. I'm in Habakkuk. Look at your troops. They are like weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to the enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defense. Work the clay. Tread the mortar. Repair the brickwork. The fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. They will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. Multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more numerous than the stars of the sky. But the locusts, they strip away the land and then they fly away. He's saying you've built up all of this stuff for yourself. You've built up all of this accomplishment, wealth, power, prestige. You think you have no fear needed. You have all of the natural resources. You have all of the alliances. Your guards are like locusts, your officials like swarms of locusts that settle on the walls on a cold day. When the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. So he's saying, hey, your leaders, they're going to sell you out, Assyria. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumble, your, your nobles lie down to rest, your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you, your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall for who has not felt your endless cruelty? What he is saying is, this guy, nobody is going to mourn the loss of the king of Assyria. No one is going to mourn the ending of the Assyrian empire. 
because everyone in that region had felt their cruelty. And if you are the people and you say, we have these great leaders, what does he say in verse 17? They're going to fly away. If you're the king and you say, I have all of my nobles with me, my great generals and leaders, he says, hey, you, they've fallen asleep at the job. They're, they're resting. You, you're trusting in these people to hold fast with you. And you're like, oh man, it's like family. That, in some ways, the, the fast and the furious family is sort of the idolatry of, of part of our culture. This idea that people will always stand with me and they'll never let me down and they won't judge me and these are who I'm going to stand with. And then what happens? They're gone. They run away. Only Jesus saves. Nahum is saying to his people, if you're trusting in the Assyrians, they are going to let you down. And he's saying to the Assyrians in Nineveh, you've trusted in your own strength, your own power, your own wealth. It will fail you. So whether you're an irreligious person or a religious person, whether you're trying to gain achievement and power in secular culture, whether you're trying to achieve safety and security in human religion, including sometimes Christian religion or Christian nationalism, it will fail you. Only Jesus saves us. Only Jesus has never let us down. Only Jesus is the one who is a sure thing. You know, we may not be in the same situation as Nahum, but I think we can see the applications. I think we can see the parallels. And I think we can know that no matter what is going on around us, that we can be the people who stand stand firm and say we are going to live in the reality of God even when everyone else is choosing to live in the fantasy or the fiction of this wicked and rebellious world. Even when everyone else is calling evil good and good evil, we will stand and say we trust Jesus. And for those of us who are believers, this is an encouragement to stand firm. And if you're listening or you're watching right now and you know that you're on the outside looking in to the kingdom of heaven, you are welcomed in. But it's a call to step out of the fantasy, all that you've known to be true and you realize it's a lie and only Jesus is true. And it's a call to step in to the victory that Jesus has brought us from this world of sin and death. We're going to pray together and we're going to proclaim Jesus' victory. I'd invite you to join me as we take communion and pray for the persecuted church. Well, this morning, we want to pray for those believers around the world who are persecuted for their faith. Additionally, we want to proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. So whether you, you have bread and uh, some juice or you know, a big hump of bread and some wine, whatever you have is an element of communion, we are going to take communion together. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, had a meal with his 12 closest followers. And he said, take and eat. And he took a big piece of flat bread that was for the Passover meal and he broke it and he passed it around and each of them took a piece. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And so this morning, all who are believers, take this and proclaim Jesus's death that was the perfect sacrifice to pay for your sin and for my sin. Let's eat together.
Lord Jesus, we know that your body was broken. You were beaten and spat upon. You were dehydrated and deprived of sleep. You were abused verbally, emotionally. Others say the abuse went even further than we like to talk about. And you were there for our sake and obedience to your Father. We thank you for that obedience. And we praise your name. And after the meal was done, Jesus took a cup of wine. And I've got grape juice, so it's all, it's all good. But Jesus took a cup of wine and he passed it around. And he said to his followers, drink this. This is my blood sacrificed for you. And so this morning, we drink and remember Jesus' blood that was shed as they beat him. Jesus' blood that was shed as they whipped his back and ripped his back open. Jesus' blood that was shed as they drove a crown of thorns on his skull. Jesus' blood that was shed as they drove nails into his wrists, into his feet. Jesus' blood that was shed after he died and they pierced his side with a spear. Let's proclaim together. Lord Jesus, the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And we thank you for the your blood shed on our behalf. We thank you that your sacrifice was accepted by God, that you rose three days later in victory to prove your victory, and that we have full forgiveness of our sins. We are justified before God because of you. And in faith, we believe in your sacrifice. Lord, we also know that we have victory in this life because you said you would send the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit fresh wherever we are at this morning. Lord, help us to live in the reality of your grace and power and victory and reject the fantasy of this world that rejects you. Finally, Lord, we do want to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted for their faith around the world. Lord, in our denomination, we have a church in Burien made up of people from the Dai ethnicity, D-A-I, and they are from Myanmar. And right now, their family members are hiding in the jungle because of their faith and this military junta that has taken over. Lord, we pray for them. They're our sisters. They're our brothers. And we pray that you would comfort them, protect them, empower them. Thank you, Lord, for the financial gift we were, as a, a conference of churches, able to send. And Lord, I pray that you would continue that provision for them. Lord, we pray for Christians in China, Christians in, um, in parts of Africa and like the Sudan, Christians in the Middle East, Christians in Russia who are in different ways persecuted for their faith. And Lord, I do not believe that in large we are persecuted here in America, but I do know of Christians in our, not just our country, but our city here who have been persecuted for their faith. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them, bless them, walk with them. Lord, thank you for the grace that you've given us to walk this world as representatives of your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Jesus loves you. Jesus has forgiven all of our sin. We just need to walk in it. 
We'll see you this week in our small groups at 7 p.m. on Zoom. And as we gather back together on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.